David Suisse. Welcome to my podcast. In the studio is the man with the toughest job in America, Matt Brooks. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, David. It's good to be here with you. Executive Director of the Republican Jewish Coalition and somebody who's on the news all the time. Why do I say he's the toughest job in America? Well, because he wants to convince more Jews to become Republican. How the hell do you do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. it's it's you know it's a long term project. That's which is why I've been doing this for thirty years. Uh, you know, it's all about making inroads. And you know, everybody says you know around this time of the year as the campaign starts heating up, is this the year that we're going to get a majority? The Republicans are going to get a majority of the Jewish vote. And I keep explaining to them, there's not going to be one election which has this monumental shift, but it's a series of elections. Over time, when, I, when we first started at the RJC, uh, investing significant resources in trying to move the Jewish vote, uh, it really was 1992 was the, uh, the first year we did that. Uh, and then George H.W. Bush, President Bush, was running for re-election. He got 11% of the Jewish vote. Why is, it, why is it the Jews vote Democrats so much? Well, I think it's, you know, I, I, there's a couple of ways to answer that, David. And I think in, on one way... I think that's fundamentally the wrong question because, you know, as I like to say, you know, you don't get very far uh, driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, the question is, why are Jews, why are more and more Jews moving over to the Republican Party? So I mentioned that we were at 11 percent and now we're consistently at, you know, 25 to 30. It's not where we want to be and ultimately we would love to have it closer to 50 percent. But the reality is, is we've uh, had a two and a half to, to three X increase in the Jewish vote over time. And, uh, you know, I like where our trend lines are heading in terms of uh, Republicans getting larger share of the Jewish vote versus where the Democrats are uh, and them losing support in the Jewish community. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, three points here, five points there, whatever. It's not uh, it's not going to be like, as I said, you know, waking up the day after the election and finding that 60 percent of the Jewish vote went for the Republicans. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so we're, we're continuing to to. Uh, work hard and to continue to push those trend lines. There's a lot of macro trends in the Jewish community right now uh, that are uh, very favorable to us as, as Republicans. First of all, as you know, uh, the largest segment of growth in the Jewish community is the Orthodox community, uh, and they support uh, disproportionately uh, Republicans than, than they do Democrats. Uh, there's also a, an interesting age factor. Uh, you know, if you're 75-plus, uh, we're losing you 90-10. We just get killed with, with senior Jews. Why? Uh, because I think there's a lot more of a, uh, you know, a lot more of a uh, cultural attachment. Voting Democrats more in their DNA. They've FDR. been doing it. FDR. Uh, the whole, uh, you know, experience of, of, you know, coming here and supporting uh, the Jewish community in the aftermath of, of the Holocaust atrocities in World War I, I mean, and World War II, and all, all of those things have made voting Democratic ingrained. So we but lose isn't them. the new generation as well? The well, I was going to say, yeah. So, you know, yeah, so if left. you're... No, no, no. Interestingly enough, 45 and under uh, are voting Republican by about 40%. So a hugely different uh, voting pattern among among younger professionals. And I think that has to do with, uh, you know, the reality is, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, we talk a lot about in the Jewish community is the Jewish community moving away from its historical passion or historical ties to Israel. You know, for so many generations, that was the defining issue. Uh, it's not that way anymore. And I think one of the reasons that we see the kind of growth that we do uh, in uh, 
younger Jewish uh, families is because of their concern about the future uh, of the country economically, about having a better uh, a better country for uh, for their kids and their grandkids, and they had for themselves. Uh, and I think on so many issues, uh, especially as the the uh, Democratic Party veers more and more to the left and the the progressive socialism, uh, then I think uh, that makes it a lot more uh, comfortable and palatable for for um, you know. Uh, middle-aged Jews to vote Republican. It, it must be complicated for you, Matt, because on the one hand, I'm, I'm sure you really love Israel and you want what's best for Israel. And on the other hand, you know, your job is to be partisan, right? So we know that bipartisanship in Congress is really good for Israel. Uh, but you're a Republican and that's your job. So does that ever enter your mind? It enters my mind all the you time, know? all the time. And I say, look, you know, I've given this in, in speeches all around the country, and I'll say, look, you know, as a partisan, uh, if I'm wearing my partisan hat, I love the fact that 80% of, of Republicans identify with Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, by contrast, uh, less than half, less than the majority, 40, uh, 48%. Uh, of Democrats identify but with But would you love that 48% to be 80, yes. even so if that's it the, meant you may correct. be losing voters? Correct. So that's the, that's the point I always make. As I said, you know, wearing my partisan hat, I love that partisan gap. As somebody who cares deeply about Israel and, and the Jewish community and, uh, you know, all of those issues, it, it breaks my heart that we don't have two parties strongly, uh, equally supporting Israel. And I think that's that's a bad situation. And I think... It's exacerbating. Uh, it's being exacerbated, uh, you know, by the the shift of the Democratic Party away from Israel. I think we're seeing, and I think we're going to see a lot of ugliness and a lot of um, uh, concern coming out of the Democratic Convention in Milwaukee uh, this year as they rewrite the platform. Uh, but I think that you know you now have, uh, you know, one of the leading uh, presidential candidates on the Democratic side calling the Prime Minister of Israel a racist. You have multiple leading Democratic candidates saying that, that uh, they want to relook at our aid relationship uh, with Israel in light of Israel's uh, Right, but actions. I want to focus on Congress just for a minute because Steny Hoyer, great Democrat, mm -hmm. super pro-Israel, you know, had 40 Congress freshmen yep. come to Israel. And I got reports back that it was an amazing trip. Yep. And it really kind of bonded them in a, in a, in a tight way with, with Israel. And don't you think that the media makes a bigger deal of the problem just because you have those few high-profile incidents from Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and so forth that make the case, make it look worse than it really is? You know, I think that, um, you know, th th that's an argument I hear a lot. I don't believe that to be the case. I think that... Uh, you know, at least one of the responsibilities that I think we take upon ourselves is to make sure that people understand what some of these leading Democrats and, you know, the, the Democrats would love for everybody to think, oh, they're a bunch of, you know, Talib and AOC and mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, Ilan Omar are just a don't bunch represent. of fringe. Right. They don't but they do. The reality the is that they are the face of the Democratic Party on so many of these things. They right might now. be the media face, but doesn't mean they represent the mainstream of the Democratic Party, right? In well, Congress. the media. I don't know that if you're the media face or something. I don't know that there's much difference. You know, we've. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I have seen um, uh, some polls, and you know, in in, in polling questions, uh, you asked, do you have a favorable, uh, unfavorable, or no opinion, or don't know X, Y, and Z person, and 
you know, it's interesting if you say AOC or, or Tlaib or Omar, um, you know, they have highly polarized favorable, unfavorables. But uh, surprisingly, uh, you know, like 80 percent of the people know who they are and have an opinion of them. If you ask somebody like Steny Hoyer, for instance, you know, 15 percent of the people know who Steny Hoyer is. If they were asked, mm-hmm. do you have an opinion of him? You know, and the same thing also, uh, you know, in, in a broad sense for Chuck Schumer and, you know, uh, and even even Nancy Pelosi to some extent. Uh, but these guys, because of their savvy uh, at social media, because of their savviness in terms of uh, getting themselves out there on these issues and generating the kind of visibility and press that they've been getting, um, you know, I think has raised their their profile significantly. And I think they're going to be a major force among others, uh, you know, uh, not just the squad, but I think there's a whole bunch of that progressive caucus in the House uh, that's going to rally around them. And it's going to make Speaker Pelosi and uh, Majority Leader uh, Hoyer's job very difficult. Now, why is that? Is that just because it's popular to just beat up on anything that's kind of seen as powerful, successful and white, which is what Israel is? And it's more popular to just protect the uh, the victims like the Palestinian uh, is Israel getting caught up in that kind of paradigm well it's an it's an interesting twist of fate and a real irony that we have never in the history of our two countries seen a an administration in the United States an administration in Israel get along as well as they do and is and is you know Obama you know one of the things he was he was that that you know was one of the first warning shots, you know, about where he was heading as, as president was an early uh, meeting with Jewish leaders in, uh, in, in the daylight. White House. And exactly. He said, you know, uh, I want to see, you know, I want, I want there to be more daylight. Between right. Because there wasn't enough daylight with Bush with and Bush. that didn't work. So I'm going to so, try daylight. And so and that didn't work. Trump either. is the exact opposite. I mean, there is no daylight. I mean, there's not even a sliver, you know, like when you're staying in a hotel and the curtains don't exactly match and you get that one <laughs> beam of light that wakes you up in the morning. There wasn't even that sliver of daylight between uh, uh, Trump and Obama. I mean, Trump and and uh, uh, and Bibi. And what we're seeing is that's now turning into a negative among the you know the left wing. I think you're seeing so much of this anti-BB well, hatred in the United States because yeah. they view it as a proxy for Donald Trump. And yeah, for, I mean, and, you know, we have to just recognize that that you know a lot of uh, the the president's unfavorable ratings has really sort of hurt uh, his position with the Jewish people, regardless of how they feel about Israel. I mean, we'll see, right? I mean, that's that's a theory. I'm confident, and I've said this publicly, um, that that President Trump will do better among Jewish voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. I don't know what that number is, but I am confident that that needle is going to get moved. Like, for example, let's just say Nikki Haley was president of the United States and that done exactly the same policies uh, with Israel that Trump has done. I would imagine you'd have more support among Democrats. I, I, you know, I don't know because, I mean, we had an unbelievable friend in George W. Bush. People will find other reasons. If they can't critique them uh, about their, you know, their positions on Israel, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, he's not pro-choice or he's, you know, soft on, on guns or he's anti-LGBTQ. So let's or, talk so. about that because that fascinates me, all yeah. right? Uh, why is it that so many Jews in America assume that the Democrats kind of have a monopoly on Jewish values, right? So beyond Israel, do you see an opportunity to make a pitch, make a case that the conservative mindset 
is also a Jewish value, and how do you see that? Absolutely. I think there is a real opportunity for us. I think to... I just gave you a softball. <laughs> you yeah. did. It I was, can tell. Because uh, uh, yeah. it's something we think a lot about, and uh, um, as we said earlier in the program, the, uh, the reality is that the Jewish community's affinity or attraction or motivation based on Israel is definitely on the decline. So uh, we're trying to figure out how to crack the code and appeal to a wider segment of the Jewish community. It isn't necessarily motivated by Israel. And I think exactly what you said, um, you know, people at the end of the day, they vote on, uh, you know, on, on their own economic self-interests or the, the interests of their families or, uh, you know, things like affordable health care and education and jobs and taxes and the economy and all the but what moves issues. the Jews, what moves the Jews is compassion, compassion for the stranger when sure. you go to the border and you help the migrants. That is the emotional well, kind of component that makes them sort of stay so strongly with the Democrats because there's a, a perception that there's a much higher level of compassion. See, it's in interesting that party. because the reason I got into politics initially uh, is I had an opportunity very early on while I was still in college to work for. Uh, a gentleman who really was not just a very close mentor and friend to me, but somebody who uh, fundamentally changed my life, and that's Jack Kemp. And as you know, Jack Kemp was famous for using the line that he was a compassionate conservative. And, you know, he always would say in his speeches, you know, we shouldn't measure our compassion as a society by how many people need food stamps or how many people live in low-income housing, but we should measure it by how few need food stamps or need to live in low-income housing. And, and you know, that's the juxtaposition. The Democrats want to say, you know, we just increased the uh, uh, food stamps program by, you know, $1.3 billion, and we just, in, you know, increased Section 8 HUD funding, you know, another $3 billion, when, you know, Kemp and others would argue we need to find ways to get people off of uh, food stamps, get them out of affordable housing into their own home ownership, into their own where they have a, 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 a you know a real job with real wages and they can take care of their families. Um, and it's interesting because you know one of the the, the fascinating parts of this election is going to be able to watch is to see what happens in the African American community with with Donald Trump. And if you look, you know, first of all, you know, he did historic prison reform, which within the African-American community is being very, very positively received. But more importantly, um, black unemployment is at the lowest rate in, in over 50 years in this country. Uh, real wage rates are, are rising and people are, are making more in, in the African-American community. We're also seeing a lot of that in the Hispanic community and other other areas in the, in the inner cities. So uh, I think one of the interesting things is going to be how he performs uh, because he has been uh, doing a lot of things that are ultimately compassionate in terms of self-reliance and helping people get you know the lift up that they need, uh, but not entrapping them in generations of, of social welfare. I've never seen any kind of you know contempt, hatred for a human being as I see amongst so many people, uh, my friends, especially in the Democratic Party, against uh, Trump, especially among women. How do you how do you explain that, Matt? Um, look, you know, Donald uh, do Trump you is, see it too? Yeah, I, well, I think there's a couple. Yeah. Of, first of all, I don't believe that this uh, originated with Donald Trump. I think I can recall a lot of very, very ugly comments and statements and actions against President Obama as well, and it was just very polarizing. I think ultimately, so much of this comes down to social media, which I think is 
both a blessing in terms of democratizing debate and discussion, but is a, just a, a, a total societal curse because it's a cancer. It just brings out the worst in people. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing exacerbated. And he uses it. And he president. uses it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, you know, I don't think we've ever seen, um, you know, sort of the polarization in our country as, as, you know, deep as we see it now since, you know, probably the 1960s. Uh, you know, certainly the the mid to late '60s into the early '70s. Um, so it's it's ugly out there. And again, I think a lot of this has to do with people's access to social media, the lack of filters, the anonymity. They can say what they want, you know, and um, you know, get people all worked up and stuff. But this is not a phenomenon that started on January 20th, 2017, with the with swearing in of Donald Trump. I think we've been seeing this, uh, you know, coming to a head and and uh, being an issue. Uh, you know, most of the Obama presidency. And where do you see the biggest challenges uh, vis-a-vis the upcoming elections in 2020 for the White House? Uh, uh, how critical is the is Republican Jewish coalition to the overall picture? Well, I will I, I will tell you that, you know, we have committed. It's very important, especially if, if I think as as we all believe it's going to be a very close election. Uh, in fact, I think it's going to be very difficult, again, given the polarization of our country, for there ever to be really any kind of landslide blowout elections for the foreseeable future. I think all these elections, no matter who the nominee is, because everybody's, you know, everybody's wearing their team jersey. Uh, and there's no real thing anymore about the middle. Uh, yeah. So so people are, uh, you know, as a country, I think, you know, people have, have chosen sides and we're going to have very close elections. So in very close elections in places like Florida, like Ohio, uh, like Pennsylvania, like um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, Georgia, um, you know, which all have sizable Jewish uh, populations. I think a shift in the Jewish vote in a close election in which, you know, um, you know, uh, President Trump carried uh, Wisconsin by what, like almost 30,000 votes or something like some tiny amount. and a shift in the Jewish vote can help. We saw it in, you know, an example of that in Florida this last election with Ron DeSantis. Ron got uh, the highest uh, vote total of any Republican in history. He got 35 percent of the Jewish vote. Uh, Rick Scott, when he last ran for, for governor, got significantly less. Uh, and uh, DeSantis had a very, very close race. And if you talk to him, uh, he credits his victory to the the increase in the Jewish vote. So uh, we're gonna we have a budget and a plan together to spend uh, a record amount uh, in terms of the outreach to the Jewish community. We're looking to spend ten million dollars this year in those key battlegrounds. Is that states. more than the last election? Yes, and it's also an expanded playing field for us because mm-hmm. we've never played in Georgia before. We've never played uh, in places like Arizona or some of these other places. So we're we're expanding the. the and do uh, you keep track of what the other side is doing? Oh, of course. For the Democratic Jewish, uh, yeah, of course world. we do. And how do you how do you keep track of what they're doing? <laughs> you know, like any good spy, yeah. we don't discuss sources <laughs> and methods of intel gathering. But uh, uh, you know, I, I think you know we both watch each other on social media and see what we're doing. And you know, we haven't been particularly shy about our plans for uh, for 2020. And um, you know, it's funny, Matt, because uh, you and I spoke last time. We did a, a cover story on on Donald Trump. Yep. And it got us more notoriety than anything we've done all year. <laughs> and it was in the same paper. We had one view written by Haley Seufer and the other view written by uh, Larry Greenfield. And I asked, you know, I asked Haley, what do you think of the piece by Larry <laughs> Greenfield? She said it was thoughtful. 
<laughs> you know, is that a, is that a backhanded compliment? <laughs> no, I, I I thought because the the world is so partisan right now, yeah. and you know, and she wrote a very tough piece on the president. Yep, and the the piece for in support of Trump, you know, was kind of got some some traction from people on the left who said, "Well, I don't agree with it, but it's kind of thoughtful." That's my idea of a decent conversation yeah. is when you can disagree with something and say, hey, it's thoughtful. The point you just made a few minutes ago on, you know, everybody's got their uniform, there's nobody left in the center. I want to quote this line from Brett Stevens last week, which I love this line, and I send it to him. The unpopular political figures of our day are the people who seem to convey less than 100% true belief. The moderate conservative, the skeptical liberal, the centrist wobbler. That's kind of <laughs> where I live, you know. But it's 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 fascinating because yeah. there's no drama in in the middle, and I think people have a tendency to see politics right now as kind of life and death. Yeah, almost like in Israel. Yeah, you know. And it's interesting, but unlike Israel, I think you know what we see over there, and I'm always amazed at you know. By the way, there's the you know uh, in Israel, there's there's huge diversity of opinion. Uh, I mean, the polar, you know, the extremes in the right and the left are are dramatic, much more so uh, fundamentally than than it is here. But and yet, yet there are huge majority huge who love Trump. Correct. Uh, and, but the, the, the point I wanted to make is in Israel, even though, um, you know, you can have a, a very hardcore left wing, uh, you know, Israeli whose best friend is, you know, a, a far right uh, uh you know, There's something that brings them and together. together, and it's 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 yeah. the love of country, and it's ultimately they you know they fight next to each other in the army and serve, and you know whatever it is they'll they'll go get shawarma together and hummus, and you know they'll just There's be some friends. Fundamental things that bring you together, and I, I wonder. I'm working on a piece for a Jewish Journal on are there any opportunities for the Jews of America to come together uh, on a common cause, right? So we're under threat like never before see the rise in anti-Semitism from the left, from the right, and so forth, and intersectionality has now become a movement to exclude Jews. BDS is a constant assault, not just on Israel, but the Jews. And you would think, Matt, that if there's one moment that we could unite against yep. one common thread, it would be now. Yep. Let me tell you an interesting story that happened to me a couple weeks ago. The Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations convened an emergency meeting uh, in uh, New York of all the heads of the major Jewish organizations and uh, organizations were not members of the conference, but you brought us in and uh, because of the political dynamic of dealing with the whole question of anti-Semitism. So they have this emergency meeting uh, to deal with the anti-Semitism question. They had me uh, and Mark Melman, who's a Democratic... You know uh, Mark? I know Mark very well. I love Mark. Mark and I are a perfect example. I mean, Let's you know, get on just... the phone with him after this. <laughs> okay. Cause, uh, you know, he just his, his uh, son was just married this weekend. Unbelievable, because yeah. I, I got to talk to him. We're doing a big story on him. <laughs> oh, good. And he doesn't know yet. <laughs> well, <So. laughs> well, we could definitely call him after, but um, if he's taking calls after the, the Simcha. But, uh, so we were on a panel to talk about how... Uh, we can address the issue of anti-Semitism uh, within the you know the political lens of of campaigns and all of that kind of stuff. And you know our our session was was after guys like David Harris from AJC and Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL and Benet Brith and all these other folks talked. And then uh, we broke out and had our our panel. And one of the things that 
the um, folks in the first morning sessions were saying is, you know, we got to be careful about weaponizing anti-Semitism. The issue, you know, uh, of us baking, having this issue as part of our political discourse is, is something that is that is problematic. So uh, we get to our panel. Uh, I was the first speaker, and I said, uh, I'm going to say something very provocative and controversial. Uh, and, you know, the whole place goes quiet. And uh, I said, you know, we heard a lot uh, earlier this morning about why we should avoid weaponizing anti-Semitism. And I said, I actually believe it's quite the opposite. I think we need to weaponize anti-Semitism. I think we need to make it a thermonuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. I think we absolutely have to obliterate anybody who traffics in them, it traffics in anti-Semitism, no matter what political party they're from. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, we've got to make it so that they are so radioactive that no one in in politics will have anything to do with them. So weaponize without politicizing. Right. So, so, you know, I did that and I finished up the rest of my remarks, blah, blah, blah. Mark spoke and then we did questions and answers. I'm not going to say who did this, but it literally was one of the, the... the, the most jaw-dropping experiences I ever had. One of the people in the panel who represents an organization in the Jewish community said, uh, I have to take issue with what you said. And I go, why is that? And she said, you know, you shouldn't be in a position, nor should anybody in this room be in a position to tell us who we should or shouldn't interact with. You know, if you want to look at Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib on so many issues like a woman's right to choose and women's health and re- reproductive health and all that, you know, they agree with us 100 percent, LGBTQ, you know, up and down. So we don't, you know, we need our allies and our friends and we're going to work with them while we disagree on some of the things they say that, you know, might be anti-Semitic. Uh, that's not enough for us to, to, to not deal with them because we need our allies when, you know, women's, uh, you know, women are under attack. And I'm like, I just was like shaking my head because if we can't agree to have a zero tolerance policy for anybody who traffics in anti-Semitism, and I said the point, you know, we came out very strongly uh, early on and, you know, for at least the last eight to 10 years and especially recently, um, condemning Steve King, congressman from Mm -hmm. from Iowa, uh, and his, you know, his views, which were, I think, you know, uh, racist and, 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 just outside of the mainstream, and where, and he certainly doesn't represent me or us in the Republican Party. So we've been very outspoken. And I said to them, I said, when we came out in support of stripping Steve King's committee chair, uh, uh, committee positions that uh, Leader McCarthy did, uh, we didn't do a calculus. Well, you know, he's good on Israel. He's good on national security. He's against Iran. So, you know, we need him. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to uh, come out against him. And that's just a ridiculous argument. The guy is is. Uh, outside of, of, you know, articulating positions that are outside any sort of moral level of acceptability. And, and where he stands on other issues that are important to us is irrelevant. And it just it's interesting to me to come away from that uh, exchange and, and realize, you know, if we, if we can as a community come together on something like anti-Semitism, it really, uh, really makes me concerned. Well, it's what you were saying before, there's two uniforms. Uh, right now, everything is seen through the lens of, is this going to help my team or is this going to hurt my team? And my identity, my tribe, is my political team first yep. before my religious or ethnic team of being Jewish. And I think the political comes first. Yep. And that's the sort of the ugly reality. And I don't know any way around it. I mean, it's it's possible that... I, I wonder sometimes if... Jews subconsciously made some kind of collective decision 
when they moved to America from the oppression that they felt around the world, especially in Europe and so forth, before and after the war, and decided we're going to become universal Jews here. Yeah. We're going to put the tribalism behind us. We've left the ghetto, and we're coming to this amazing country, and we're going to be universal. And now that we need a little bit of tribalism to stick together against these common threats, we just don't have that muscle. Yep. Um, our good mutual friend, uh, Adam Milstein, has been... Uh, talking about this quite a bit. And, uh, you know, especially, you know, lately, and in, in if you've seen any of the video clips of some of these awful attacks against the uh, Hasidic Jews in, in Brooklyn, you know, the, the point that he made in, in posting a couple of these videos is you could see the guy, you know, on the ground just taking a beating without putting up any fight or any defense. And one of his uh, friends who he was walking with, you know, started to come over and the guy, you know, looked at him and he jumped away, you know, without, yeah, I, I mean, and, and, you know, we've just lost that, um, you know, that, that thing that has always made Jews, you know, the toughest SOBs around. And, and, you know, uh, on so many levels, I just think we lack that, that passion or that toughness or that willingness to stand up and confront regardless of what jersey and what uniform we're wearing. Yeah. And uh, beyond fighting, this idea of uh, pro-Semitism, where we can build a positive message for Judaism throughout America, uh, that's kind of lacking too, because I could see how, you know, if you got your political uniform on, all you're going to worry about is why are the Republicans not beating up this sign of anti-Semitism from the Republican side, and on the Republican side, they're going to say, well, why are Democrats not beating up Ilan Omar? And you get this kind of crossfire yeah. that's so predictable that is also political. Yep. And, and you wonder if there's another arena to play in, which is that we can come together and convey some big ideas about Judaism and promoting the Shabbat, for example, promoting big you know, Jewish contributions to humanity and so forth. If there's some parf stuff that we can agree <laughs> on, you know, it's nothing to do with the political uniform. <laughs> Does it exist? I'm giving you a teaser of what I'm working on. Yeah, no, I think that's writing. a great question, and, a, and a, I look forward to reading that. I think that is one of the uh, essential questions of our of our generation and our community right now. Well, you know, the money's an alarmism. That's the reality. Mm -hmm. And whether it's like fundraising or media ratings or so forth, there's uh, a lot, it's more lucrative to, to talk about the battle. And that's a bias that I have to deal with, you know, in, in the media world. You know, it's like I focus on the battle, I get, we get more clicks yeah. and, and more readership. So, but I think we do have a responsibility to look for these areas of agreement. And you're kind of in an interesting position because your very job is to be partisan. I think it's to be partisan, but be true to who we are. And like I said, uh, I don't believe, nor do I want to be one of those guys who traffic in in sort of hypocrisy. You know, I, if I'm going to call out Elon Omar or Rashida Tlaib or anybody, you know, on the left who traffics in anti-Semitism, it's important to me that we call out people on the right too. And I think we've got a, you know, I think we've got a really great track record of us holding our own accountable uh, while at the same time allowing us to critique the, the left as well. Were you, uh, were you conservative growing up? When, when no, I was um, uh, conservative politically or conservative politically. Um, yes, I was actually. So, I mean, I had it was very easy for me because I came of age politically, uh, you know, in, in the, the late 70s, early 80s. So the contrast for me was, 
you know, Jimmy Carter, Iran hostages, 20 percent, uh, uh, 20 percent uh, interest rates, uh, long gas inflation. lines, yeah. inflation, you know, the whole mm-hmm. thing. And then and then Ronald Reagan had a totally different mm-hmm. view. And that just resonated, you know, making America, uh, you morning know, in America, morning in America, tur- you know, cr- turning our economy around, making sure that peace through strength and that we were respected globally and internationally after the whole debacle. Winning the Cold the War. Winning the Cold War, all that stuff. And that's what that's what framed my my uh, political thinking and, and how I became a conservative and stayed true How did that. you react to Bill Clinton? Because Clinton was a real genius. He was a policy wonk. He had a lot of centrist tendencies and he reformed welfare. He was not, yeah. he was far from being Jimmy Carter. No, it's, um, but it's interesting that, um, you know, I doubt, for instance, and obviously there's an element of the Me Too thing in this, but I, I'm pretty sure the Democrats aren't even going to have Bill Clinton at the convention, uh, mm. you know, in, in 2020, uh, you know, with um, uh, Obama and and Clinton being the so-called moderates these days in the Democratic Party, I think it says a lot about where the Democratic Democratic Party has moved to. And, and you know, Bill Clinton couldn't win the nomination. Yeah. They, the, they for, really moved. For, they yeah. moved left, I think, pretty much. Well, the, the moderates are not in the game right now. Who do you see winning the... Uh, Elizabeth Warren. You see Warren is taking it? I do. And I do. If I were to put money down, uh, I think she's my likely front-running pick Why right that? now. Well, I think, first of all, I think she's ide- more in step ideological. I think, look, I think Biden, uh, you know, everybody sort of likes Biden. But he doesn't have the depth or the the kind of support that's going to get him through this Democratic primary process. Mm-hmm. The party, like we said about Bill Clinton, uh, the party has just moved away from him, and and sort mm-hmm. of there's not enough, especially with the early states, of him to be you know the centrist alternative to all the other progressives. It's just the the numbers aren't there. So I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for Biden to get the nomination. Um, and then it's a question of you know within sort of the next tier, and I put Bernie, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, um, maybe Kamala in that uh, in that tier, but mm-hmm. uh, at some point, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I believe, is going to end up kneecapping uh, Bernie Sanders, and and that progressive, uh, you know, she will appeal in a way that Bernie Sanders can't and won't to a larger segment uh, of the of the Democratic primary electorate, and I think she will emerge, and and sort of that whole wing will. Well, Sanders will has a ceiling. Yes. Right. Um, and people are looking for, you know, I think they want somebody, they, they realize that, you know, he's the, you know, he's the, 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 you know, old grandfather kind of, you know, candidate that, that they like. But I think they realize that, you know, you're going to need somebody younger and, and uh, a little more uh, aggressive. And, and uh, you know, the thing with, with Warren is, you know, she's walked the walk and talked the talk and she's, she's not as scary to the, the, you know, the centrist in the Democratic Party say Sanders is because she's not tied into the label of socialist. Well, she's a uh, formidable debater. Yes. Uh, is that a concern? Um, Hillary Clinton was a good debater, too. Right. You know, Trump is in his own league, so the old yeah. rules of debating <laughs> just don't. Nothing works. <laughs> Nothing applies to him. No. My God, he's an entertainer. No, he among is. All, uh, among many other things. But there was something interesting on Sanders this morning, which is, you know, uh, a lot of her views go against the view she expressed in a book she wrote with her daughter, you know, many years ago. Yeah, and we're going to see stuff like, I mean, she was invariably, centrist. Yeah, invariably, you know, the, these campaigns, you know, everybody starts plowing through everything, every article, thesis, 
college mm. paper, whatever letter to the editor that anybody's ever written, yeah. and and try to 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 use opposition, uh, you know, oppo as we call it, opposition research against them in the uh, in, you know the debates and all the other stuff ahead. Um, Do you go to those debates, man? Yeah, um, I did. Yeah. Uh, uh, went to the one, uh, the the real crazy one uh, in Las Vegas last uh, last time around. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I know it has a circus-like atmosphere to it. Speaking of circuses, I know uh, you were on the campaign trail with Jack Kemp. Yep. I always have this romantic view of campaign trail where you sleep four hours a night. What's it like on a campaign trail for president of the United States? Is it just crazy? It is. You go through months of an adrenaline rush. Give give, give it, me a taste. It's so it is. Um, you know, some people liken it to you know the the friends that I made. Uh, and the Kemp campaign from, you know, uh, from 1986 and 87 and 88 when I uh, worked for them uh, are still some of my closest friends. It's like, you know, it's almost like being in battle, with, you know, with with You folks. wake up at the crack of dawn. dawn. Yeah, uh, and lots of coffee. Lots Just, of coffee. Yeah. And, and, you know, by the way, Kemp is a, is a local uh, L.A. guy. Went right. to Fairfax High School. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right played here. for the Rams. Played for the played for the, the played for the Rams for a little bit, then traded to Buffalo. But right. uh, um, he is. Um, and uh, and what was it like on the campaign trail? How many hours a day did you work? Uh, I was like, younger then, so it didn't seem like. But I mean, we were. You know, we would be. You know, up and out like at five thirty, six o'clock to get the candidate uh, to you know some early morning meet and greet at a you know at a bang at a, at a Denny's a, a Denny's or a, a, a you know a bank a, a plant <laughs> a plant all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing. So uh, it's very interesting. You know, so so much of your 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 day, at least at the level that I was at, was not only you know sort of. Uh, executing and making sure the events and all the the, the the politics were 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 in a good place for for the events and the advance work and all that kind of stuff, but you also have to manage the candidate, and yeah. so you ask how much we slept. So whenever I was driving with with Kemp and we'd be you know going from one event to another, he'd always be looking outside the window and there's a George Bush lawn sign and there's a Bob Dole. Don't lawn tell sign. me he wanted and, to stop. And no 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 he was like he's like. Excuse me, where are all my signs? <laughs> and it's like, well, Jack, you know, it's yeah. not exactly uh, yeah. your strong your strong precinct here. But sure enough, you know, I got the message very quickly. My mother did not raise a dummy. Uh, so uh, after we put the candidate to bed, uh, you know, which was you know, around midnight or something Hotel like that. Hotel lobby, a few drinks. Well, no, I got in the car and I knew the route that we were that we were going to take with uh-huh. him, and I would just plaster yard lawn very, signs. Uh, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a single sign, you know, one block guy, over Matt. on either side, but, you know, he saw wall to wall. Whatever it takes. <laughs> so that cut into my sleep as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Speaking of your mother, uh, I guess she, this is not the kind of career she had in mind for you. <laughs> shock of all shock. She wanted you to be a nice Jewish doctor. She is did. Is that correct? She did, and I did too. I was... Uh, uh, really, where I was heading, you know, personally, I was I was passionate about medicine. I grew up, uh, you know, working uh, in uh, the operating room with a couple of, of really amazing uh, cardiothoracic surgeons who took me under their wing, and I was all set to be a, a great heart surgeon. And uh, Kemp, uh, I got an internship um, in the summer of 1986, working for him. I was the state chairman. Uh, I loved politics. Um, so it was it was weird in that, um, you know, one of these doctors said, you know, when you at school, you know, do a major 
that is not science-based because, you know, you want to be well-rounded. So I was a political science major, organic chemistry minor. Uh, and so I got uh, the uh, Brandeis at the time offered a uh, stipend to go to Washington for a summer internship to the top students in the political science department. I was fortunate enough to get that, and I worked for uh, for Kemp. And so uh, after that summer, uh, he would be, you know, uh, I'd be back at school and, you know, they'd call me and say, hey, you know, Jack's flying into Logan. Can you pick him up and drive him to Manchester or, or Concord or somewhere in New Hampshire for some events? And I'd say, sure. And I'd drive. And, you know, we just had this really great friendship emerge. And he said, uh, would you mind, you know, this was in my senior year, would you mind taking a year off before you go to medical school and come work on my campaign? And as I jokingly say, it's been a long year. Oh, man. That was how many years ago? Uh, so that was 1987. I mean, you know, this five seconds that changed your life. I, I, I deal with that a lot. Yeah. I speak to people about their lives. And everybody's got like that five to ten second moment that changes yep. 40 years of your life, if yep. not more. And the irony is, you know, I have a bunch of friends who ended up doing uh, – the, the, the cardiothoracic surgery route and some other, and they all hate it. They just, you know, the way medicine is and the practice of medicine has changed, uh, you know, they're just miserable. And so uh, I think, you know, Hashem does things for a reason. So. Yeah, the, you're definitely not bored on your job. <laughs> my, my, my 10 seconds was when I moved to a Jewish neighborhood uh, exactly 13 years ago. And on a whim, I was at Starbucks and I wrote a funny column making fun of the neighborhood. And I sent it to the Jewish Journal, and they said, well, this is great, David. You know, can you do this every week? I said, you're out of your mind. Maybe once a month. <laughs> they said, no, 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 try it every week. So this was September of 06. And I said, you know what, I'll give it a shot. 13 years later. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long month. A long yeah, month. seriously, can't believe it. 13 yeah. years later, haven't missed uh, a week, and it's these real game-changing moments in your life yep. when you decide on a whim. Had I not written that column, you know, I'd be running an ad agency somewhere yep. or who knows what, you know? And that's an important, you know, you talk to a lot of folks in our world and, you know, I'm always interested in their path and how they got to where they are in life and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's one thing to... Uh, be presented with opportunities, but it's also another to see the opportunities see and, and, and take it. Yeah. And uh, and you saw it, and you I saw, saw it, it man. And, yeah. And, and I, I first of all, you probably saw the adrenaline rush. Oh, right? I, yeah, I love. I him. like I this him. guy, Jack. I'm going to spend a year with him. This is going to be fun, right? It's going to be fun. You and know, was it greatest? Uh, well, second greatest, third. Well, uh, I was greatest <laughs> moment in your life was when you married your wife. wife. Yeah, and the kids. Second greatest <laughs> when the kids were born. Let's get that out of the way. All right, and I started number three. Uh, number three, the <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm going to connect you with my cousin. He's still crying. He's a huge Eagles fan. Oh good. I, I you know, it was. I was fortunate enough. My took my my 18 year old son at the time. We it was it was one of the most amazing experiences and uh Why, somebody who's what been is a painful... it about sports that does this to us well it's you know it's a, uh, you part know, of it is when nothing happened to your family you didn't get a raise nothing good happened to israel nothing good happened to the republican party a freaking team won <laughs> a team <laughs> who know? i've never you know in, in 53 years of uh my walking this earth would never won a super bowl so it's a lot of pent-up uh, excitement look, i'm a laker fanatic game seven against boston I mean, I'm still milking it. <laughs> yeah. I'm still. You know, my son and I, it's hard to explain our attachment yeah. to sports. I have a theory that we need stuff in our life where there's no stakes. 
no real stakes. They win or lose, nothing bad really happens. Unless you're a gambler. They bad. Yeah, unless you're a gambler, <laughs> for sure. And I don't gamble. So, good. So you're uh, all Philly all the way. All Philly all the way. And so, um, yeah, it was one of the – I mean, I really loved when I was in uh, high school. I, I was the manager of an ice cream shop where I always say if I can make what I make today, <laughs> I'd go back and do that job. It was just a blast. Why, of, uh, Why was it fun? Just the interaction with the yeah. people and the pressure. You know, we this was like a really popular place, lines out the door kind uh-huh. of thing. So you really had to be keeping up with the pace and, you know, managing people was always something that I gravitated to because I, I liked the, the human interaction and – uh, you know, and and uh, and I love what I'm what I do. I mean, you know, to do what you do professionally for thirty years, I know makes me a bit of a dinosaur in terms of nobody does that well, anymore. Well, you're executive director for almost twenty years. No more, right? Because oh, it was the previous name. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how long you've been executive director? So of I the took over JC. Um, so I started March of '88. Uh, at the what was then the National Jewish Coalition, now the Republican Jewish Coalition, as policy director, so. as uh, political director, political right. And so uh, I took over as executive director in uh, the end of 1990, so about two years in, and I was 24. Right. 24, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's around. So somehow they years. took enough of a, of a chance, and uh, you know, uh, it's been it's been a, a good run. I'm hoping at some point in the next. Uh, you know, year or two, they'll take interim off of my title, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're still 20-year <laughs> interim. They're, they're, I love that. They're not sure if it's going to work out at this how point. Big, how big is your staff? Where's your office, D.C.? So we have actually, we have an office. Um, our national headquarters is in D.C. We actually have an office here in L.A., and Alex Siegel is our uh, director here in Los Alex, Angeles. Alex, is that you? You're here? Okay. can't believe I never met you. All right. Um, we have an office in New York. We have an office in Florida. We have an office in Pennsylvania and an office in Chicago. Uh, we've got uh, a little over 50,000 members, and, you know, the last couple of years have been the greatest in terms of growth and, and expansion that we've ever, ever had. And how do you see the next, I mean, obviously you got the elections coming up, but you have, you know, do you have the luxury of making long-term plans? Of course, yeah. You know, I think you're in this business, and I think in any business, if you don't have long-term plans, uh, it's very hard. I mean, you know, you may have to tweak them and modify them, but I think it's it's important to be able to to think beyond the immediate horizon and to think two years, five years, ten years out, uh, as any successful business executive would do. And you know, that's one of the things that I hope um, allows me to to be successful at, at at my job. So I have an MBA from. Uh, Georgetown. I had to have them. I had to have the Jesuits deprogram me from my Brandeis undergraduate <laughs> days. Uh, but it, you know, running this, I, I run the the RJC as a business, and I want to make sure that we, you know, provide significant ROI for our donors. I don't view, you know, too many organizations view their donors as, uh, you know, an annuity that, you know, just the money's going to show up, you know, every year. And I think that's that's a mistake because I think you have to earn it. I think you have to demonstrate value. Uh, and so I also manage the organization. We have uh, 26 employees across the country. You know, and I manage, you know, I manage it like a business. And, mm. you know, I have, you know, P&L responsibility and I'm making sure that we spend right and, and you know, uh, don't exceed our, our means and, you know, all the kind of stuff to, you know, in terms of generating our revenue and can I can I make a offer a suggestion completely unsolicited? Sure. Um, as part of your business operation, invite a rabbi one day, a, a centrist, liberal, compassionate rabbi, and ask him 
is there anything about the conservative mindset that's a Jewish value, right? I will uh, I will tell you offline about my. By meeting the way, for there tomorrow, is a great rabbi in D.C. Who's that? Hertzfeld. Oh yes, Shmuel? you know, yeah. yeah, he's a character. We yeah. went to Selma with him. He's really a, very knowledgeable. Yep, a lot of compassion, but but he's not that. he's not a liberal. Oh boy, oh boy, does he do amazing things with the homeless? Yeah. I went on a trip with him to Mississippi and Selma during Martin Luther King weekend. He adopted kids. He's That's he's great. He's really an amazing, amazing yeah. guy. And I'd be really curious to see, because we, we often hear that in the democratic world that they follow Jewish values. And yeah. I'm, I'm up for that. It's cool. I'm just curious, though, what do the Republicans, Republicans say beyond just, you know, good for the economy and jobs and, and the policy stuff, just philosophically, uh, is what are the Jewish values, if any, in the conservative mindset that the Republican Party aims to uh, represent. Um, was that a question, or was that you oh, teeing no, no, me no, up for, just, uh, no, no. <laughs> for my I'm just for suggesting, my... <laughs> okay. and then I want the answers after you get them from Hertzfeld, <laughs> and I also would love to get you back here. In next, because it's you, you'll be back. Close oh yeah, to I'll the be back. I'll right? be back a lot. I, you know, we have yeah. a great, uh, we have a great group of leaders here in in LA. Uh, I'm speaking to uh, about seventy of our of our top leaders uh, tomorrow night. Uh, but I try and get back here. You know, it's just it's a very important. Uh, LA is a is a very important and central uh, component of of the organization. And so much as I was saying before about taking support for granted and. You know, I think it's important for people out here because they're so far removed geographically from D.C. that they have a chance to to visit with me and our team Great. and and have Great. input. And so, so I'm here a lot. And I would love to to, to be back again. Yeah, yeah. If you'll have me. No, I, no, absolutely. And we'll probably in the heat of battle before the elections. Probably a year. Maybe you can from get now. Haley and I on together. You know what? I don't mind. I'm going <laughs> to aim for that. We have room. Uh, or 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 we'll get Mark Melman on the phone, and you'll be Mark and <laughs> I'll will. do it. <laughs> Um, what do you think of what he's doing? Oh, I think he's great. Right. Look, the I, Democratic I, majority yeah, for Israel. Um, it, it's funny. I always joke with him. I said, uh, you know, if he, what he's doing is vitally important. It underscores what we've been saying for a while about trying to pull the Democratic Party back to uh, its traditional pro-Israel moorings. Uh, but I've got to be very careful. Like I always tell him. Uh, I'll email him or whatever and say, you know, I want to I want to praise you on, uh, you know, this tweet or whatever. Do you mind if I retweet or is it going to end up hurting you with your, your oh, yeah. people? Brooks. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, it was really delightful to, to have you, Matt. Uh, keep it up. Shana Tova. And That's almost that time. Shana Tova. Is, yes. And, and we'll see you soon. All right. Thank you very much, David. Take care. Thanks. <laughs>